Hey ladies, it's Bridget Todd here. As women, we put our hearts into everything. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month, and it's time to focus on our heart health. Release the Pressure wants to help Black women look at self-care as an act of self-preservation. During High Blood Pressure Education Month, let's help get to our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Visit iHeartRadio.com RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. That's iHeartRadio.com RTP. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Hi, it's Bridget Todd, host of There Are No Girls on the Internet. Listen, technology has made our lives easier in some ways, but it's also made us homebodies, scrolling mindlessly. Well, you get the point. Let Rails to Trails Conservancy unstick you from home. When you get out on a trail and get to walking, you'll feel so good. Trust me. You'll see that being out on the trail is so much more than a day outside. It's good for your soul. Get ideas for getting outside on the trail from Rails to Trails Conservancy, the nation's largest trails, walking, and biking advocacy organization. Visit railstotrails.org slash iHeart and on social media at Rails to Trails. One of my favorite conversations I've ever had on There Are No Girls on the Internet is with a writer who was targeted and harassed online about how she continues to stay safe while doing visible work on the internet. Without missing a beat, she said, anybody worried about online harassment should sign up for Delete Me. I signed up for Delete Me right then and there, and I personally recommend it to anyone. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts take it from there. Take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. Now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash nogirls and use promo code nogirls at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash nogirls and enter code nogirls at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash nogirls, code nogirls. When someone won't even acknowledge that you work for them, like they're certainly not going to acknowledge your humanity. If they don't value enough to give you the proper legal paperwork, they do not care how your day is going. And, and that is the problem. There Are No Girls on the Internet is a production of iHeartRadio and Unbossed Creative. I'm Bridget Todd, and this is There Are No Girls on the Internet. We're in what feels like a little bit of a renaissance when it comes to organized labor and unions. More and more workers, whether they're baristas at Starbucks or journalists, are seeing the power of unions and organizing as a collective. And even though we maybe used to have an idea of a union member as being a white guy working at an auto factory or a steel mill, the face of who we understand as somebody who needs a union is really changing too. More and more media workers and office tech workers, for instance, are trying to unionize. This shift is something that labor reporter Kim Kelly is really happy to see. I'm Kim Kelly, and I am an independent labor reporter and the author of Fight Like Hell, the Untold History of American Labor. So how did you become someone who cared about labor and telling the story of all of these different fights? So I guess the short answer is I got involved in organizing my workplace. That's kind of a, a direct pipeline right there, right, to caring about the labor movement, joining it. But um, this was the longer answer. It was like, well, I'm from a union family, from a very like rural, uh, working class, kind of isolated place. And everyone who raised me was a construction worker, a steel worker, a teacher. Like everyone was in the union. It wasn't something that we really talked about that much or really it was, you know, really discussed. It was just part of 
the job, part of life. Like, oh yeah, dad's in a union. That's why we have health insurance. That's why he has to go to those meetings sometimes. That's why he's on strike and we can't go to Walmart, you know, things like that. And it wasn't really until I was at Vice, where's the heavy metal editor, and some colleagues pulled me aside and were like, hey, we want to form a union. What do you think? And I'm like, hell yeah, let me get involved in that. That I realized that there were even, it was even an option, like that there were unions for people like me, someone who at that point was writing about death metal on the internet. (laughs) But it turns out there was, and we joined it. Kim got more and more involved in unions through organizing around her own union at the media company Vice. And we organized like, Almost, I think by the time I got laid off in 2019, we'd organized like five or 600 people in the building and we'd bargained two different contracts. Like we'd gotten raised, we'd improved the workplace. We'd done a ton, we'd accomplished a lot. And I was deeply involved the whole time because being in a union had always kind of appealed to me as an idea, as something that fit into my political, like my political views and my worldview. And it just kind of felt nice to join that family tradition. But um, I didn't really start writing about it with any sort of regularity or depth until after we unionized. And I was already freelancing a lot, working advice, because they didn't pay us shit until we organized. Another big endorsement for unionizing a workplace. <laughs> yeah, I was freelancing a ton. And uh, really, it just kind of happened by, not by accident, but uh, unexpectedly. Because I was writing a little bit, uh, just freelance stuff about the prison industrial complex routine book. And I pitched them on a profile of Mother Jones, the labor leader. I thought, oh, okay, your audience is predominantly like younger women. Like, here's a cool icon we can talk about. And my editor said, yeah, that's a cool idea. But I don't think our audience necessarily knows what a union is. So why don't you write about that first? I was like, okay. And I wrote a little explainer because at that point I'd kind of learned more about the movement, about the history from talking to organizers we work with, from reading books on my own, from just getting all fired up about union stuff as like a baby organizer. And um, I wrote that article and it kind of was like mini viral. People paid attention because in 2017, people weren't necessarily used to looking to Teen Vogue for their like anti-capitalist analysis yet. They're like, what is this? And essentially like it, that helped me out as a freelancer where I was like, okay, that went well what if you let me do a whole column? And they're like, yeah, okay, we'll try it. And that was like four years ago. And really just having that experience organizing and kind of learning on the fly and being a big nerd and loving history books kind of made me feel like I was allowed to write about labor. Like I had a leg to stand on. And once I kind of gave myself that permission, I really just dove in and started writing more and writing more, talking to more people, just kind of fell in love with the idea, right? Because I'd spent my whole life up till then writing about heavy metal which is still a great love and still a huge part of my life. But I was kind of looking for something new and the union happened to be there at exactly the right time. And once I realized I was going to more union meetings than heavy metal shows, I thought, okay, maybe it's time to actually try and do this. And here we are. Wow. What, what a trajectory. (laughs) It's so interesting to me. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it really, I, I see a lot of through lines in your work and I, I remember the Vice unionization fight, and um, I, I, I heard radio where my podcast is hosted. Oh, we just recently yeah, unionized, uh, which was a big deal. Uh, I guess it's a good question. What do you think of this idea that, I, I don't know, I often, I think that everybody could benefit from a union. I think the, the benefits are, they're for, unions are for everybody. But I often hear this kind of pushback that like, oh, what does an office media worker need a union for? What, what do you say to things like that? Oh, it makes me so mad because it's just like, and there's always like stupid, like rich white guys on Twitter that just feel the need to have opinions about, oh, well, grad students don't need a union. Video game workers don't need a union. Journalists don't need a union. You're not working in a coal mine or in a factory. Okay. Do you have a boss? Does you rely on someone else's decisions to pay your bills? Do you have to go to an office? Do you have coworkers? Are you getting mistreated? Are you getting disrespected? Like, are you going to a job? Do you work for someone? Then you need a union. It is ridiculous to act as though different categories of work or whether were you doing like the white collar, blue collar sort of dichotomy or whatever other artificial division that somebody with an interest in preserving capital likes to lean on. Like it's It's never been the case that only one type of worker, one demographic of worker is allowed to have a union or is encouraged to have a union or is benefited from having a union. Like every type of worker can benefit from having a union. 
And it's not even necessarily, you don't have to go through the specific process of like filing for an election, dealing with NLRB, doing all of the kind of bureaucratic red tape BS that a lot of workers are kind of forced to deal with now to form a union. You can just get together with your coworkers and try and make some shit happen. Like there's no one way to be a union member. There's no one way to be a union and they're all valid and important. And honestly, building collective power with your coworkers is the most effective and empowering thing that you can do because one worker on their own can only do so much. But a bunch of us, whether it's five or 50 or 500, that's how you move mountains. Whether you work in an office or you work in a coal mine or you work at Amazon or you're a gig worker, like someone is trying to screw you over. And the only way you can stop that is by getting together with a bunch of other people who are feeling screwed, screwed over doing something about it. Oof. You, I love how you put that. And that's the thing that I, I really love about talking about labor and the you know collective organizing. And it's something I really see as a value, that it's about people banding together, oftentimes against massive, powerful companies like Amazon that have like teams of lawyers and PR and all of this. But even with all that institutional power, they're not p- more powerful than the collective, they're not more powerful than people coming together. Is that something that you see in, in these union stories as well? Yeah, I mean, Jeff Bezos is the new Jay Gould. Like we talk about, they're in the new Gilded Age, the railroad barons, like they controlled the rails, they controlled all the capital. But the workers built those rails and the workers shut them down a whole bunch then <laughs> like, struck fear into the hearts of the capitalist class. Like there's, there's always more of us than there are of them. And I think that's something that workers sometimes forget because we are so disenfranchised and isolated and beaten down. But the people on top never forget that. And that's why they get so frightened and anxious when they see workers organizing, because they know that they are outnumbered and that if a whole bunch of people want to make them do something, it's, you know, we've done it before and we'll do it again. <laughs> like there's The history of labor in this country is very complicated. There's a lot of wins. There's a lot of losses. There's a lot of struggle and bloodshed and beautiful things and terrible things. But every step forward that we've made as a country has come from workers, has come from regular working people downing their tools and saying, all right, I've had enough of this shit. Let's do something. And that is something that has not gone away. And especially now, I think it's something we're going to keep seeing more of because it's easier for people to be connected to one another. It's easier for people to see other folks taking control, whether you're you know, a Starbucks customer, you buy stuff from Amazon, you go to REI, you have a friend who works as a grad student. Like Someone in your life is probably part of some kind of organizing effort. And if they're not, you can help them start or you can start your own. Like The possibilities are endless. Let's take a quick break. Hey, ladies, it's Bridget Todd here. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month. It is crucial for us, especially as Black women, to focus on our heart health. We pour our heart and soul into every aspect of our lives, but often our own health takes a backseat. That's where Release the Pressure comes in. It's all about us, Black women, seeing self-care as an essential act of self-preservation. Whether it's for yourself, your family, or your community, your health is invaluable. Let's help get to our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Here's how you can join in. Head to iHeartRadio.com RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. Let's make our health a priority. Visit iHeartRadio.com RTP today. Together, we can make a difference in our health and our lives. Join us and let's take care of our hearts together. Hi, it's Bridget Todd, host of There Are No Girls on the Internet. Listen, technology has made our lives easier in some ways, but it's also made us homebodies, scrolling mindlessly. Well, you get the point. Let Rails to Trails Conservancy unstick you from home. When you get out on a trail and get to walking, you'll feel so good. Trust me. You'll see that being out on the trail is so much more than a day outside. It's good for your soul. Get ideas for getting outside on the trail from Rails to Trails Conservancy, the nation's largest trails, walking, and biking advocacy organization. Visit railstotrails.org slash iHeart and on social media at Rails to Trails. Y'all know I love the internet, but a sad truth about it is that it can be a scary place, especially for women, people of color, and trans folks. 
We've talked to people on this podcast, whistleblowers, activists, and advocates who are making technology safer, who then become targets for doing that work. But the truth is, it can happen to any of us online. That's why I personally use and recommend Delete Me. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and makes sure it stays off. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts take it from there. Take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash nogirls and use promo code nogirls at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash nogirls and enter code nogirls at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash nogirls code nogirls. So in 2024, one of my goals is to finally get serious about my finances. It's been kind of a big emotional thing for me. Thinking about money historically has caused me a lot of anxiety and stress because I have a lot of trauma related to money. And if you can relate, if that sounds like you, check out Fearless Finance. Fearless Finance provides on-demand, comprehensive financial planning by the hour. It's a new way to get financial advice without all the headaches, high fees, and commitments that come with traditional financial advisors. Fearless Finance planners don't sell anything. No used car salesman vibe here. And that means no concerns about being sold something just for the commission that it earns a rep. Their planners meet you where you are on your financial journey. No judgment, whether you're looking to buy a house, optimize your savings, or just want to make sure your finances are okay. They can answer your questions and help you achieve your goals. No question is too small. No problem is too big. Fearless Finance is making financial advice more affordable and accessible. You meet with your planner virtually, and they charge by the hour. Visit fearlessfinance.com today to get started. You can chat with a planner for free to make sure it's a good fit. And you'll get $50 off your first planning meeting when you use code GIRLS. And we're back. Um, this, this right here, um, this is going to be the, the, the catalyst for the revolution. That's exactly what this is. Yeah. I just witnessed that. Back in April, Amazon warehouse workers on Staten Island's JFK 8, the Amazon warehouse with the most employees in the state of New York, won a historic bid to form a labor union. It's the very first Amazon facility in the United States to have a successful union election, which is huge. So we know that workers at JFK 8, the Amazon warehouse in Staten Island, they won a union election and they kind of went against some of the conventional wisdom. You know, they started their own independent organization instead of trying to sort of join an established national union. And I've read some of your writing on this and it sounds like to you, it really just comes down to the workers. Um, Can you tell us more about kind of like what you mean by this? Yeah. So here's the thing. Like what the Amazon Labor Union organizers did was incredible and inspiring and so important. And it's also not anything new. Right. The idea of building a union from the ground up, of building real human bonds and connections and solidarity, forming a community to fight instead of you know, following a, pres- a prescriptive playbook, doing what you're supposed to do, because that's how it's done. That's how it sometimes works. Like, no one has to do anything. Like this is uh, this is the thing. I mean, that's one of the reasons they're so successful. They kind of threw out that playbook and drew on whether or not it was intentional. They drew on these kind of historical examples of workers in their position doing the exact same thing, because the workers that organized at JFK eight predominantly like younger folks, queer and trans folks, black and brown workers, immigrant workers, multilingual, multi generational of a vast multiracial, multigender, multi-everything kind of coalition. And that is how workers have won throughout history. And that is not something that you maybe find in every mainstream labor history book, but that is just true. That's just how it is. I mean, one of the parallels that I, as a labor nerd, I like, I like to draw between JFK 8 uh, and history is um, what Dorothy Lee Bolden was able to do in the 60s in Atlanta. And she was a domestic worker from the age of nine, like really the majority of black women in women in that city in that time that had a job, they worked in domestic service. And she realized like, okay, we're not being paid enough. Our work isn't being treated properly as labor. We're being treated like garbage. And you know what? Like there's a lot of us, maybe we can do something about this. She actually lived a few doors down from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And she was commiserating with him one day. And he told her like, Dorothy, you know, you can just, do something yourself. Like if you want to change things, if you want to organize things, like just do it. 
And she did. She organized the, the National Domestic Workers Union of America, which wasn't a recognized like standard labor union. It wasn't operating within that framework. It was an independent organization. And she, at, the, at its peak, the membership roles hit, I think, 10,000 people. So all Black women domestic workers in Atlanta. And they built power and they built political power. They educated one another. They shared resources. In order to join, all you had to show up with was a dollar and a voter registration card showing the intersection between different movements for justice. And it's such a cool example because she did it her way and she made a huge difference. You can see there's a direct line from George Lee Bolton's organization in the 60s to the current National Domestic Workers Alliance, which, I mean, in Philly a couple of years ago, they managed to pass an incredibly impactful bill that helped get health care for domestic workers in my city. Like, everything builds on the work that someone did before, whether it's in 1960 or 1860. And I'm just excited to see what's going to happen in 50 years when someone younger than me writes a book and interviews Chris Smalls and asks what inspired him, right? Because we're all part of the link. We're all links in a very long chain. And, you know, one link can do something cool, but that whole long chain that's how we get close to where we need to be. Oof, I have chills. What a, what, what a description. I used to talk at a lot of union meetings. I love a slogan. <laughs> it's historical. It's, uh, it's Amazon versus the people and the people have spoken. That's Chris Smalls, the president and founder of the Amazon Labor Union. He started working in Amazon warehouses in 2015. During COVID, when everybody, myself included, was ordering a ton of stuff on Amazon, Chris started to speak out about how warehouses were putting workers at risk by failing to meet basic COVID mitigation protocols. So Chris organized a walkout in protest. He was fired that same day for, according to Amazon, failing to meet social distancing protocols. So basically, Amazon was claiming that Chris was the one who was failing to keep Amazon workers safe, not them, which is a little sketchy. So Chris organized. He started the Congress of Essential Workers, which later backed the formation of the Amazon Labor Union. Amazon suits like former Obama administration spokesperson turned Amazon PR and policy chief Jay Carney and David Zablotsky personally smeared Chris in leaked notes. They called him not smart and not articulate. In fact, they thought Chris was so not smart that their plan, according to these reports, was to make Chris the face of the movement, because certainly that would tank it. Only it backfired. Chris, it turns out, was an incredibly effective organizer and spokesperson and would go on to usher in the very first unionized Amazon warehouse in history. I mean, it's, it's so you've just hit on a couple of things that I am fascinated by. One, I do think we have this, this issue, not just in, in labor organizing, but in organizing in general, where it's so tempting to have there be one face. Like, this is the person who started this whole thing, when the reality is it's often so many different stories and voices coming together. And, and I, I, I get the inclination to make it about one central figure that like, that is such a, that is such a powerful motivating thing just in our culture, but that sometimes it can obscure what you were just talking about, that it's a lineage. It's about a lot of people coming together and inspiring each other. Yeah, I saw it was it was interesting because Twitter is always going to Twitter, but I saw there was uh, some criticism because people were excited about Chris Smalls, who was the leader of the Amazon Labor Union, who was kind of the spark that started that whole movement when he was fired in 2019 for protesting about COVID safety. Like, you got to hand it to the guy. Even, like, like, sometimes it is okay to lionize someone when they have done something incredible. And I think it is important for us to have those working class heroes, you know? Of course, like, no one person does everything. People are flawed. People are complicated. We shouldn't, you know, hero worship is not something that I would recommend, but acknowledging and appreciating someone's skill and someone's importance to a movement, that doesn't take away from the collective effort. That's just kind of giving somebody their flowers and they deserve them. And I think something that, you know, President Smalls has done in a really wonderful way is, is making clear, like, the Amazon Labor Union Organizing Committee, like, all of us did this. All of us are in this together. Like, a lot of the other organizers are public too. Derek Palmer, Angelica, and Justine Medina. Like, it was clearly a very collective effort. But, you know, I, I think it's okay to get excited about having one person, you know, getting a little bit more attention. Because, I mean, <laughs> we need more heroes. We need more heroes that look like us and sound like us. And especially the fact that, like, 
a young, handsome black man with gold teeth and tattoos is like the face of the labor movement in America right now. That is phenomenal. Like that is going to keep the movement moving. That is going to bring more people in. We do not need more white guys in suits. Like we got some good ones. Shout out to them. But like <laughs> the white guys in suits are also a lot of the time the people that have their boots on our neck. Like I think it is very important to recognize who the working class is and what they look like, what we look like and sound like and talk like to build those connections, to bring more people in and show that there's so much more room in the movement for every other type of person. And, you know, I don't, I don't want to talk too much shit on the white guys in suits. Some of them are great, but <laughs> some of them aren't. And they've had plenty of a time to bask in their attention over the years. I think it is perfectly fine to give someone else a shot. Absolutely. Every single time I see a photo or a video of Chris Smalls in his fitted and his do-rag talking to an elected official, I'm like, yes, this is like, it just feels good to see. It just feels like, and honestly, if I'm being honest, him being, like his trajectory is what got me fired up about the Amazon fight. I will never forget the way that Amazon suits used this like very clearly racially coded language to refer to him and discredit him. He's inarticulate. He's not mm. smart. He's not a deep thinker. And I feel like every black and brown person, every immigrant or anybody connected to, to, to one of those communities knew exactly what these Amazon suits were trying to do. And what's so funny is that, A, they were really downplaying the multiracial workers that 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 keep their company running, that made that like they would be nothing without. And I think that they really kind of shot themselves in the foot because in the end, they made Chris, Chris like this lionized face of their movement because, like, it kind of in spite of their trying to discredit him. And boy, they couldn't have picked a more effective spokesperson, right? Like the wrong one for that. If they were trying to keep, like they even said in some of their little leaked internal memos, like we're going to make him the face of this. And I remember when they won, he tweeted like, you know, thanks. Like, good call. That was the worst mistake you ever made. It's like, it just shows this massive disconnect between the people in the C-suite doing whatever the fuck it is they do all day and the people actually working and living these communities and trying to build power, trying to survive. Like, why wouldn't people respond to a character like Chris? Like, why wouldn't people want to talk to other folks in the organizing community to speak their language and live in their neighborhoods and take the bus with them? Like... Why would someone listen to some rich guy in a suit when they could talk to someone that they're used to seeing, like, out in the neighborhood, who, like, someone whose cousin, you know? Like, why? It's, it's, a, it's like a century apart, but thinking about the way that the workers in the organizing committee at Amazon were able to build power and bridge these kind of artificial divisions, it reminds me of this example Bear with me. Again, I'm a giant nerd. I just wrote a whole book about it. But in 1946, the Great Sugar Strike in Hawaii. And at that time, and probably still, but especially at that time, the sugar cane plantations in the islands were owned entirely by uh, white guys who lived in the mainland. And they were worked by Native Hawaiians, as well as Chinese, Korean, Puerto Rican, Filipino, Japanese immigrants, but predominantly Asian workforce from all sorts of different places, lots of different languages. And the bosses had a very explicit policy of treating different workers differently, unequally. So like some workers made more than others. They kept all of the workers in different segregated camps so that Chinese workers and Filipino workers, Korean workers wouldn't really see one another, wouldn't really talk to one another. And they did that because they wanted to make sure the workers wouldn't organize. They wanted to be able to use different groups of workers against one another, uh, as in like earlier strikes. Uh, Filipino workers were brought in to act as strike breakers when Japanese field workers went on strike. There are a lot of instances of that kind of thing happening. And when it came time to strike in 1946, the ILWU, International Longshore uh, and Warehouse Workers Union, a really cool radical union, their history is rad. Uh, there was time to strike and they realized, okay, we can't let them break us apart like that again. We need to pull people together. And how do we do that? They brought in translators and made sure everybody in every meeting felt heard and understood what was happening. They had different groups of workers cook for one another and share recipes and build community that way. Same thing they did in the parking lot at Staten Island. They brought people together on a human level and showed them, you know, you're all being exploited. You're all being treated like garbage. You're all being, you're all in this together, whether or not you chose to be. So why not embrace it and try to become more powerful together? 
And it worked. And they won. They won like the first big raise in like 20 years. And that's exactly what I thought about when I heard about, you know, the barbecues and the jollof rice and all of the just the very personal, intimate kind of organizing and connecting that was happening in the parking lot and in the break room at Amazon and JFKA. Like when you connect with people as people and listen to them and hear them, that's when magic happens. Like it sounds so basic, but I feel like people in charge don't get that because they don't see us as people. Yeah, that's, and I think it really goes back to what you were saying that people coming together, people uniting in the power of co- like community and shared vision and a collective, that, that's such a powerful force. And it's not surprising to me that the powers that be, whether it's, you know, sh- sh- sugarcane owners or Amazon is like, oh, we got to keep these people divided. We got to keep them. We have to really inflame these divisions because when they come together, there's more of them than there are of us and they are very powerful. And so just figuring out ways to, to, like really rely on those community bonds, I think is so important and valuable. Yeah, and like unions have screwed that up over the years too. The labor movement is not, <laughs> the track record is not great, especially when it comes to like, uh, I mean, even now, right? So earlier, I always think about this example because it makes me so mad. The American Federation of Labor, which was like an earlier organization that later got folded into the AFL-CIO, that's a whole thing. But in like the 1800s, 1880s, when the Chinese Exclusion Act was passed, AFL were big supporters. They're all about it. And that was obviously incredibly xenophobic, racist legislation that kept Chinese workers and other Asian workers out of the country for decades. And at that point, those labor leaders embraced that because they didn't want people to come in and take their members' jobs. And now that is a familiar refrain that we've seen throughout the centuries. Like at one point, it was women, then it was black workers, Chinese and other, uh, other Asian workers. Now it's Mexican, South American, Central American workers who are being painted with that brush. Like there's always this reactionary impulse in some corners to say that, oh, these other people are coming in and taking everything we built. Well, how the fuck do you think you built it in the first place? By organizing people and trying to help workers. Like that kind of mentality has harmed the movement and harmed so many workers over the century. Like just the thought of seeing a new group of workers coming in who are more vulnerable, who are desperate for work, who are in a marginalized position and thinking, oh no, they're going to mess with our our guys, our people, instead of thinking, oh, we need to organize them and bring them in so we can help them out and like our union will be stronger as a result. The unions who have done that are still around. Like they are more effective than the ones that were, you know, exclusionary and have refused to kind of get with the times and realize that all workers deserve a union and all workers maybe deserve to join your union, depending on what you do. It's like, I think a good example of unions kind of, and this isn't necessarily like um, that type of division. This is more like just workplace division. But I think about the United Auto Workers, who are obviously the storied industrial union. Like there's, I touch on them in the book and they're, you know, they've been around forever. They're synonymous with like Detroit and the Rust Belt and like, you know, the automotive industry. And right now, out of their 400,000 members, a quarter of those 100,000 people, they're grad students. They work in education. They work in colleges and universities in California and across the country. Like, and that is the big shift. And that's a great, like, that is how you evolve. That is how you grow and stay relevant. Like, sure, an adjunct professor at, you know, University of California has a different experience from someone working in a plant in Flint, Michigan, but that doesn't mean that they still don't need those higher wages, those better working conditions, the protections of a union contract. Like we're all in this together. And the sooner that people realize that and act and organize around that principle, like the sooner we're going to get shit done. (laughs) The sooner we'll get free. I mean, literally, it's It's so simple, but people have fucked it up so much over the years. More after a quick break. Hey, ladies, it's Bridget Todd here. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month. It is crucial for us, especially as Black women, to focus on our heart health. We pour our heart and soul into every aspect of our lives, but often our own health takes a backseat. That's where Release the Pressure comes in. It's all about us, Black women, seeing self care as an essential act of self preservation. 
Whether it's for yourself, your family, or your community, your health is invaluable. Let's help get to our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Here's how you can join in. Head to iHeartRadio.com RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. Let's make our health a priority. Visit iHeartRadio.com RTP today. Together, we can make a difference in our health and our lives. Join us and let's take care of our hearts together. Hi, it's Bridget Todd, host of There Are No Girls on the Internet. Listen, technology has made our lives easier in some ways, but it's also made us homebodies, scrolling mindlessly. Well, you get the point. Let Rails to Trails Conservancy unstick you from home. When you get out on a trail and get to walking, you'll feel so good. Trust me. You'll see that being out on the trail is so much more than a day outside. It's good for your soul. Get ideas for getting outside on the trail from Rails to Trails Conservancy, the nation's largest trails, walking, and biking advocacy organization. Visit railstotrails.org slash iHeart and on social media at Rails to Trails. So in 2024, one of my goals is to finally get serious about my finances. It's been kind of a big emotional thing for me. Thinking about money historically has caused me a lot of anxiety and stress because I have a lot of trauma related to money. And if you can relate, if that sounds like you, check out Fearless Finance. Fearless Finance provides on-demand, comprehensive financial planning by the hour. It's a new way to get financial advice without all the headaches, high fees, and commitments that come with traditional financial advisors. Fearless Finance planners don't sell anything. No used car salesman vibe here. And that means no concerns about being sold something just for the commission that it earns a rep. Their planners meet you where you are on your financial journey. No judgment. Whether you're looking to buy a house, optimize your savings, or just want to make sure your finances are okay. They can answer your questions and help you achieve your goals. No question is too small. No problem is too big. Fearless Finance is making financial advice more affordable and accessible. You meet with your planner virtually and they charge by the hour. Visit fearlessfinance.com today to get started. You can chat with a planner for free to make sure it's a good fit. And you'll get $50 off your first planning meeting when you use code GIRLS. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Let's get right back into it. So this is probably where I should say that I have a pretty complicated personal relationship with Amazon. If you walked into my apartment building on any given day, there's probably a few Amazon boxes shamefully stacked up in the trash. And I honestly don't want to tell you how much I order from them. Let's just say it's a lot. And I'd be willing to bet that I am not alone. It's just the truth that our, myself very much included, individual actions impact what life is like for workers at Amazon warehouses. So what should we do? So to that vein of sort of the sooner we realize we're all in this together, I have to sort of admit something, something that I'm like, it's one of, it's probably, there's probably not many things in my life that I am like more deeply personally ashamed of than my personal relationship to Amazon. Uh, I got very hooked on it during the pandemic. Um, And what I really mean is like, I was clearly sort of like relying on it to experience like a short-term serotonin boost of like new shit at my door because I was depressed and sad. Like like most Me people. Sephora, I hear you. <laughs> oh God, there's a Sephora, there's a Sephora box right behind you, right behind this laptop that you can't see. So I, oh, no, yeah. <laughs> and I think there are probably people out there listening who can relate, you know. Do you think that there is a need for all of us to sort of recalibrate around the human cost of companies like Amazon and sort of 
just like what it means. You know, I've listened to Amazon workers talk about how they're not robots, but I think it can be hard for people, especially people who might kind of have to rely on Amazon for whatever reason. Like maybe they have a disability, maybe they're a new mom and like, you know, it's just like how, how shit gets done in their household. Um, I, I don't know. I, I guess I, I wonder how can we, is there a way for us to sort of meaningly recalibrate so that people, to, to, to sort of feel more attuned with the fact that like, yeah, the reason why I was able to get a, a new hat in 24 hours is because of a person who brought it here and a person who put it in a box for me. Right. And that's hard. That's like one of the great conundrums of modern existence, right? Like the idea of like no ethical consumption under capitalism. I'm probably not even smart enough to discuss all the implications of that, right? But, and I do think that it's important to recognize that individual people should not necessarily be on the hook for the actions of massive corporations and a failed government that has allowed the things to get to this point. I mean, I personally try to avoid Amazon, but like half the time that just means I'm trying to find someone on walmart.com, you know, like it's not, we're kind of, we're stuck in this current reality. I mean, you can do little things like instead of pushing for two day shipping, go for like the, the later option, you know, like if you're able, just go to the store. Like if you are not a, because a lot of people, like you said, are dependent on delivery services because they're disabled, they're immunocompromised, they have other stressors on their life that means that they need to use these services. And I think that is fine. Like people need to survive and people need to thrive in the ways that they're able to. But yeah, I think that <sighs> ditching Amazon would be cool. But then if everyone in the nation was like, we're going to boycott Amazon and then did it, that would be cool. That would have an impact. But the U.S. government still pays Amazon to like use the internet. Like there's all the, their tentacles are so deep into everything we consume and every part of our existence as like beings who use technology that there's only so much that individual consumers can do so i don't know like try to avoid it if you can but like half the time my mother-in-law sends us crap off of amazon anyway like there's <laughs> she does not listen to me she's italian so <laughs> it's a hard question right like i think even what you're talking about now, like this step of realism, like I got this because a person brought it to me, a person packed it, that person might be in pain, that person might be having a hard time. Even just internalizing and understanding that aspect of things will probably impact your consumer habits and it'll probably impact the way you see, you know, petitions about workers asking for better working conditions or the way that you support union drives. Like I think the first step that any person can take, no matter the situation, is to recognize the human cost of this, you know, these consumption patterns, this setup, this whole, you know, capitalist hellscape we're trapped within. Like, and then what you do from there is kind of up to you. But I think that putting the onus on individual people to fix all this stuff isn't really fair when we have a government and a social system and a capitalist society to blame. You know, you can, if we all got together and did a boycott, that would be cool. But I don't know. It's, it's a hard question, right? Like, how do you go up against a giant when you're not like, because consumers, there's probably a way that consumers could organize against Amazon, but I don't know what that would look like. What, a boycott, a strike. It's, I feel like people, I see people talking about, oh, we get a boycott Amazon all the time whenever news comes out of how terrible they are. And I'm like, yeah avoid them if you can but i think we need some kind of greater uh, like concentrated strategy if we really wanted to take them down and then what would come after them what are we gonna go after walmart and target like that's cool too but it's it's a big thorny thing and if it comes down to it at the very least don't pick 24 hour shipping <laughs> yeah that's that's like a, that's a good like practical if you've got a, if you've got a little bit of a problematic relationship with Amazon, like I do, at least, you know, you can, you can make that experience. If you're going to buy from them, make that experience a little less crappy for some of the workers who are doing the work to bring you your serotonin boost or the like life-saving medicine that you need or what have you. Right. Yeah. It's, yeah, it comes down to remembering that there are people in those warehouses and a lot of them are in pain. A lot of them are struggling. Some of them are going to lose their lives because the way that Amazon operates and I mean, maybe I'm not a big electoral guy, but pressuring your elected officials to try and do something about Amazon and corporations like that, that could be an avenue for people too. I feel like there's a lot of different ways to slay a giant or at least, you know, cut a couple pounds of flesh off of them. And hopefully one thing we'll see from the success of the Amazon labor union drive and, you know, hopefully more rumblings that we'll see across the country is that people will 
realize what's happening and realize the role they play and just maybe reevaluate the way that they interact with that system. And, you know, if they have friends at Amazon, maybe tell them about the union, the union would be a good step too. Yeah, I like that. I mean, it's so interesting because I, I was reading the story yesterday, I think it was yesterday, about how the food delivery service Grubhub had this free, they were going to do free lunch for three hours yesterday. And it basically was a shit show. All the kitchens were really backed up. And come to find out, they didn't tell any of the kitchens or the delivery drivers that this was happening. And so part of me was like, are they just so divorced from the idea of like human labor that they didn't even think that they needed to give these people a heads up on what, what, they, what they were doing? It's like, I mean, they don't consider those people employees, even, even though they clearly work for the country, and they don't consider them like equal partners when they're dealing with these independent restaurants. I mean, Grubhub is so shady. I was just reading today, like I live across the corner from like an incredible Indonesian restaurant, and they, they were posting on Instagram, like, please don't order from Grubhub. We didn't ask to be on there. They don't have our prices right. Like we, we're trying to get them to take it down. Like they will do that. They'll try and encroach on independent businesses, like whole operations, just because they think it might get them more of a commission. Like they don't care about the people they quote unquote partner with at all, whether they're business owners and restaurant workers or the delivery workers. Like it, it does come down to that idea that the people that are doing this labor are invisible to the people that are making these decisions that impact their days. Like. Oh, they'll, they'll figure it out. Oh, there's plenty of drivers. Oh, this, I, they, there's so many ways to justify treating people poorly if you don't have their welfare and their well-being at the top of your mind. And that's clearly what happens with these tech companies. They don't, like, the fact that so many people that work for tech companies are resigned in this weird nether realm of gig work instead of just being given a W-2 and clearly acknowledged as the employees they are. Like, when someone won't even acknowledge that you work for them, like, they're certainly not going to acknowledge your humanity. If they don't value enough to give you the proper legal paperwork, they do not care how your day is going. And, and that is the problem. It is a problem. I mean, it's I, I it's so interesting to me how oftentimes tech companies, like when we're talking about organized organized labor, it's often conversations about tech companies. Do you do you see technology and labor as linked? Oh yeah, and I'm not I'm not a technology guy, and there's definitely reporters who do really good work in that space, especially folks at Motherboard. Shout out to Edward Onwiso and uh, Lauren Gurley; they're really on top of those those intersections. I'm kind of a dummy when it comes to tech stuff, but even just in terms of what you see happening, whether it's in like the gig work world or the increasing surveillance that companies are, are able to levy against union organizers, this you know Amazon's little banned word list on their internal chat or the whole big brother aspect of them being able to monitor everything you do. Like technology and labor have always been connected. I mean, going back to the industrial revolution, right? Like that new technology that came in back in the day, pulled people out of uprooted society, pulled people into these factories and these dark satanic mills, totally kind of reconceived the way people related to labor and wage labor specifically. I mean, one of the things about, tech work and like gig work. I keep harping on this gig work, gig economy thing, but I think it is so insidious and it is such a big issue in labor right now is that that's not necessarily a new thing either. Because when you think about gig work, like someone who is a gig worker, you're giving, you're giving little assignments and you get a little bit of money for every little piece that you do. You don't have a specific set workday or set hours. You're just kind of picking up whatever scraps come your way and trying to piece together something you can survive on. That is a very old concept going back to like the early 1900s, something called piecework. Garment workers in New York City specifically at that time, they would spend all day laboring at the factory. And all day, I mean like 12 plus hours in poorly ventilated, hot or cold, locked door, just nightmare places. They And a lot of them were women, a lot of them were children. All these folks would go spend all day in the factory and then come home and they would bring home more scraps of fabric or unfinished projects and work on these pieces and they would get paid by the piece. And basically, like they they're kind of the predecessors of the folks that are stuck in this predicament right now because they didn't have I mean, they had their, their day job, but they were trying to make more money. So they're being paid so poorly at their day job by doing these bits and pieces. And of course, they got shortchanged. Of course, they were, you know, this wasn't like in the era of candlelight. So imagine someone hunched over sewing a shirtwaist at 1 a.m. in the morning before they have to wake up at five to go to the factory. Like, 
that is not that far removed from what today's delivery drivers and rideshare app drivers and all of the other things that are now being grouped into this sort of amorphous gig work, remote work, just uh, this weird morass of you know, garbage. <laughs> it happened before. And regulations and labor laws and progress in that space kind of chipped away at that. And right now we're kind of in this weird wild west zone where tech companies can do whatever they want, which seems like maybe somebody in charge to do something about that. But half the people in charge are like friends with the tech people. So (laughs) it's a a little bit of a different world, but some things really haven't changed. Yeah, I definitely I definitely see that as well. Um, so I want to talk about the book a little bit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, Fight Like Hell, the untold story, the untold history of American labor. Um, you really write about the ways that people who have been historically marginalized, like women and black folks and indigenous folks, um, were the lifeblood of labor and always have been. And like our stories and our voices were always there. Even though, you know, I feel like the 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 face of what we think of as a, as a someone involved in a union is like a white male. Um, I guess my question is, one, how do we make sure that we're telling a more authentic story of what the face of labor actually looks like? And are there any, like, do you have a favorite figure or person who you want to get more shine in the history of labor? Yeah, well, okay, I'll get to the second part in a second. But I think, like, it's one of the most important things to realize and recognize is, like, you know, the, the subtitle is The Untold History. And that's not to say that folks haven't been telling these stories the whole time, right? Like, the workers told them in the first place, and then contemporary journalists and chroniclers wrote them down. And then historians and academic researchers and archivists, they dug into the past and pulled out all these pieces and preserved them and analyzed them and, you know, tucked them away somewhere safe. So then, like, journalists and nerds like me could come in and kind of pull together and synthesize that information and bring it out for other people to see. I think so much of it comes down to people that are in a position to elevate these stories and write about labor, write about history, do it in a way that's accessible and intersectional and inclusive. Like it's not that hard. Like literally you could like any labor book you could pick up, like there are black and brown and indigenous and queer and disabled folks and women and every other gender, like in those stories too. It just depends on what you choose to focus on. And I think that is something that people can be more mindful of. And certainly not folks in the academic space who are like very specifically uh, research specific groups or eras, like um, whether it's like Judy Young, who wrote a book called Unbound Feet of Social History of San Francisco, that was hugely impactful for uh, my research into that area, or Dr. Tara Hunter, who wrote To Enjoy My Freedom, which is about Black women's labor post-reconstruction. Like academics have done this work, but it is not necessarily on offer to everyone, right? Like you can't necessarily walk into a library and pick up their books, though you should be able to. It's There's a little bit of a gap between what's available to folks in the academic space and what's available to folks that like maybe walk by Barnes and Noble on their way home from work. And it was really important to me to pull together as much as I could from that history and, you know, pull from tons and tons of research and different historians and newspapers and magazine articles and interviews and put it together in a way that made it very clear that everyone else has always been here and has done incredible things. And I hope that people will read my book and then read the bibliography and follow those breadcrumbs and find some more of those those important writings, because this is just the beginning. This is kind of an intro to a lot of these folks. Like uh, one of the people, to, to your second question, one of the people that I was so excited to write about because I thought I knew so much about her, and then it turns out I was wrong. A woman named Lucy Parsons, who, and I, I knew about her just from my involvement in like radical space. She's kind of like an anarchist arc icon. And I had read an earlier biography of her from the 70s. I'd read her own writings. I thought I had a pretty good grip on who she was. But then uh, this historian named Jacqueline Jones put out a book a couple of years ago called uh, Goddess of Anarchy that was this exhaustively researched biography of Lucy Parsons' life. And it turns out that the common wisdom about her and her life was pretty wrong um, during her lifetime. And Lucy Parsons, she was kind of a chameleon. It was kind of to her, she decided to shapeshift a little bit and hide who she was in order to be more impactful in her work and more easily relatable to the white factory workers she was trying to organize, right? Because she presented herself as a mixed, like, Spanish and indigenous maiden from Texas. That's what she said she was. 
And she said she was from there and she moved to Chicago with her husband, Albert Parsons, in the late 1800s. And they set up shop and started organizing in the anarchist community and the labor community. Like she was a dressmaker and she organized lady, like women garment workers. And she, she had like a very interesting overlap uh, when it comes to like labor and anarchist politics, revolutionary politics, because at that time, a lot of those folks were the same people. Like that was a very, not incestuous, but a very interconnected community. Like it kind of still is now, right? Like radicals, we've always been here. <laughs> we've always been getting up to mischief in the labor movement and elsewhere. But um, so yeah, she was, she, and she was a co-founder of the Industrial Works of the World, IWW. Like she, she had an impact in the labor community, certainly, and in labor history. But Lucy Parsons was not who she said she was. She was born in Virginia on a plantation. She was a black woman who was born enslaved who moved out to Texas following emancipation. And then she kind of built up her own mythology to protect herself. And for other reasons that I don't know what went what, what through her head, I haven't met her, but she was just this fascinating character. And she intersected with so many different pieces of so many different movements. But I, I tried to write about her in a way that showed like how important and interesting and like radical and militant she was, but also acknowledged like, she was not perfect. Like even outside of her own identity and, you know, the way she presented herself, like she did, like she made some pretty gnarly decisions in her life and you can read more about it. But it was, it was a challenge to write about a figure that I've admired for so long and to kind of address a little bit of the, the uglier and messy humanity of a person like that. But I was really excited to include her because I, I feel like she's very well known in radical circles, but labor people, unless you're like, in Chicago and have a specific interest in that point in time, you probably don't know that much about Lucy Parsons. So you probably have a pretty negative view of her and the other anarchists. And I was hoping to kind of, I don't know, present a, a more balanced view of someone who I think is a really important historical figure. That's fascinating. And it, it really does go back to recognizing humanity and sort of, if you only know Lucy Parsons as this, you know, hero figure that you miss out on all these other parts of who she was and how and what made her her and how she showed up in the world and is I don't know isn't it better to have a messy complex honest human person to 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 you know look to for guidance than a hero than someone who like you know is just isn't act, isn't all of those things right because that just makes it seem like a storybook kind of situation or a fairy tale instead of a flesh and blood person, a historical thing that happened. And so many of the people in this book are complicated or, or they've been either people that have been kind of left out or they have been included, but not in the fullness of their whole experience. Like um, I, I start out the book in one of the earlier chapters talking about the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire, which I feel like a lot of people know about that. That's a big one. And Clara Lemlich, one of the organizers uh, of the, the garment workers union that was kind of in that milieu, right? Like she was part of the uh, uprising of the 20,000 in 1909. She, that was before the Triangle Factory fire, but they're connected because Clara Lemlich, who is often painted as this just kind of spunky girl who stood up in a meeting and said, we're going to go on strike. Like she was a Ukrainian Jewish immigrant who had been organizing for years. She had gotten her ribs broken by the cops on a picket line. Like she was an organizer. She was out there. Like she was not just a, a spontaneous romantic heroine. Like she was in that struggle. And like the the connection with the triangle of Sherwood's factory fire is um that the work that Clara Lemlich and other organizers, predominantly at that point, Eastern European Jewish women and Italian women, the work they had done, if the owners of that factory had signed on to the agreement that those organizers and that strike forced like most of the other garment factories in that area in Manhattan to sign, those workers probably wouldn't have burned to death. Like they were one of the only factories that didn't sign on to these more uh, increased safety accords. So that's, yeah, I'm going in, I guess, a slightly different direction, but it just shows that like they, these human people that are so connected to so many other things happening, like you're, no one's just a hero. You know, sometimes you're someone who got beat up by the cops and decided, okay, we're, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to force this system to change because it's not fair. Starting with the Starbucks in Buffalo in 2021, Starbucks baristas have been unionizing across the country in states like California and Utah. And a lot of this energy is being sparked by a new generation, younger folks. 77% of young adults support unions, according to a September Gallup poll. And I have to say, that feels pretty darn hopeful. 
We're in this moment where it feels like a lot of big wins for labor. You know, the first Starbucks unionizing, you know, the JFK 8. Uh, I'm seeing a lot of interesting chatter about unions on places like TikTok, where younger folks hang out, like Gen Z. So they're really fired up about unions. Are you hopeful that we're entering this new era of union power? I am always hopeful to the point of almost being a Pollyanna about these things. Um, and that's, I think that is, it's definitely a conscious decision to be hopeful and be optimistic because the labor movement has kind of been in decline since really before I was born. I'm 34. So I guess like the, the entirety that I have been on this earth, the numbers of union density have been falling, you know, anti-union legislation has been you know, cutting us off at the knees. There have been all of these factors, like manufacturing, Lord knows what happened there. Like <laughs> There have been all these factors kind of pulling the movement out of the movement, like kind of uh, putting a damper on things, we'll say. And, you know, facts aren't always fun. Numbers are not always fun, especially when you're looking at union density. But we are in a moment where, like you said, specifically the younger generation is interested and fired up and paying attention. And not only are they paying attention, they're doing something. They're organizing. I mean, the Starbucks workers and Amazon workers, like those are younger people. Like not only are they younger people, they're queer and trans and black and brown immigrant workers, like workers from these marginalized backgrounds that have always formed the backbone of the labor movement, but have not necessarily gotten their due. Like these are the workers propelling things forward. And that is important and significant. And even some of the conversation I've seen like on TikTok and other places where maybe a traditional labor union isn't the answer for some specific groups of people, that doesn't mean that them thinking about it is inconsequential. That doesn't mean they're going to find a different way to organize and find a different way to harness their labor. Like I got an email from a person, actually I got an email back, um, <laughs> uh, about a bunch of independent sellers on Etsy who want to form an independent sellers guild. And that is an, it, that is very interesting. Like I need to do a little bit of reading to figure out what to tell them, because like that's kind of a whole bunch of small business owners coming together, and they want to organize against this bigger company that they are kind of in dialogue with. Like that is not like that's tricky. That's a little complicated, but it's very interesting. Like that is not something that would have happened five years ago, or maybe even a couple of years ago. Like all of these new organizing wins. And some of the setbacks and some of the losses, like that is all working in concert to get people excited and give people an option. Because I think a lot of folks for a very long time have maybe either felt or been made to feel like the labor movement isn't for them, like unions aren't for them. Like back when I was at Vice, when someone asked me if I wanted to unionize, I was like, we can do that. Like we work, we live in Williamsburg. Like there's kombucha in the, uh, in the fridge. Like really? Like my dad's an operating engineer. I can be in the same movement as him and I could. And so can anyone else. There are a lot of ways to form a union, a lot of ways to organize with your coworkers and build power. And I think this current generation, and gosh, it feels so, makes me feel so old to say that. I'm like not old, I promise, but definitely people younger than me are doing really big things. And I don't think that's going to stop. Like, I know that Amazon and Starbucks are going to pull out every stop and use every nefarious legal means and probably extra legal means they can think of to try and slow this wave down and try to, you know, stave off union negotiations and, and put a stop to this. But I don't think you can put that lightning back in the bottle. And I think if those big corporations keep actively trying to bust up these unions and break down these organizer spirits, like there are going to be consequences. You can't be a big, quote unquote, progressive company and be a union buster and have anyone take you seriously. Like I think the tide has turned in a very real way. And I'm sure that there are labor historians and economists who would have a whole bunch of like you know, like my broader perspective and numbers and like have a lot of things to say about that. But as someone who's just like studied unions a lot and talked to a lot of workers and is very excited about unions in general, like this feels like a very cool time to be alive and to be paying attention. And I am so grateful to those younger workers who are kind of pushing the movement in this direction where it's needed to go for so long. I love it. I love a, I love a hopeful ending. Yeah, I'm just, I, I, I believe that we will win, even if it's after I'm dead. <laughs> mm. Kim, where can people keep up with all the amazing work you're up to and get the book? So you can buy the book anywhere. I mean, fuck Amazon, but if you got it, you can get it on Amazon. But I always tell people to, uh, if you can, 
either order from like bookshop or indie bound or like an independent bookstore or get it from the library. Like the library changed my life. I wouldn't be here without it. So if your library has it, just get it there. I don't care. I just want you to read it. And um, I'm uh, aggressively online. I am on Twitter at Grim Kim and on Instagram is Kim Kelly writer. And I have a Patreon thing. I think it's just Kim Kelly. And um, I'm, yeah, I'm too old for TikTok and all that, but maybe if I figure it out, you can, hopefully you'll find me on there, but yeah, give me a little time. I'm, I'm in my thirties, man. I'm falling apart. <laughs> awesome. Uh, is there anything that I did not ask that you want to make sure gets included? Mm, no, this is incredible. But I, I guess the last thing I will say is that I hope I wrote this book for workers and for regular people to read on their breaks or on the bus or when they get home from a long day to pick it up and page through it and hopefully find people in the pages that ring true to you. I want people to see themselves in this book and to recognize that they are part of this incredible history and they're part of the future too. Like the labor movement has always belonged to all of us, whether or not the people in power wanted us to recognize that. And the only way we're gonna get closer to being free is by working together and recognizing that power and fighting like hell to take what's ours. If you're looking for ways to support the show, check out our merch store at tangodi.com slash store. Got a story about an interesting thing in tech or just want to say hi? You can reach us at hello at tangodi.com. You can also find transcripts for today's episode at tangodi.com. There Are No Girls on the Internet was created by me, Bridget Todd. It's a production of iHeartRadio and Unbossed Creative. Edited by Joey Pat. Jonathan Strickland is our executive producer. Tari Harrison is our producer and sound engineer. Michael Amato is our contributing producer. I'm your host, Bridget Todd. If you want to help us grow, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, ladies, it's Bridget Todd here. As women, we put our hearts into everything. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month, and it's time to focus on our heart health. Release the Pressure wants to help Black women look at self-care as an act of self-preservation. During High Blood Pressure Education Month, let's help get to our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Visit iHeartRadio.com RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. That's iHeartRadio.com RTP. Hi, it's Bridget Todd, host of There Are No Girls on the Internet. Listen, technology has made our lives easier in some ways, but it's also made us homebodies, scrolling mindlessly. Well, you get the point. Let Rails to Trails Conservancy unstick you from home. When you get out on a trail and get to walking, you'll feel so good. Trust me. You'll see that being out on the trail is so much more than a day outside. It's good for your soul. Get ideas for getting outside on the trail from Rails to Trails Conservancy, the nation's largest trails, walking, and biking advocacy organization. Visit railstotrails.org slash iHeart and on social media at Rails to Trails. Looking for hair removal tools that not only deliver smooth results, but also empower you with a sense of complete control? Enter Conair Girlbomb, your secret weapons for smooth, sleek results made just for women. From the ultimate Girlbomb grip and professional grade blades, you don't have to compromise and settle for less. Conair Girlbomb equips you with the precision and power previously reserved for men's grooming tools. So take your hair removal routine to the next level with Conair Girlbomb. Available at conairgirlbomb.com or a retailer near you. We've all been there. You have a question about your credit card. You call the number for help and you can't get a hold of anyone. If only you had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right, a real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discovery.com slash credit card.